during the course of this retreat, retreat, we've gone through three of the four Brahma Viharas, or the divine abodes, uh, doing the practice and also listening to the many different aspects of those Brahma Viharas. So we have gone through metta, or loving kindness, karuna, or compassion, and mudita, or sympathetic joy. And the last one is equanimity, which I'd like to speak about tonight. All of these, as we have learned, hopefully, through our own practice and through listening to the different aspects in Dharma talks of these qualities of heart, all of these are different expressions of love, different expressions of how we can relate to the world. One of the teachers I practiced with, Ayakema, said something once that was, uh, I didn't believe her at first, but I've come to see that it's true. That if we had no other emotions except for loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, that we could live a very full and beautiful life very wholesome and worthwhile life uh, with the addition of wisdom, of course, to all of those, and not feel in any way that we were uh, shorthanded in coming to life. And I've come to see that that is really true in life. Of the four of these Brahma Viharas, it is said that equanimity or upekka is the queen or the king of these uh, Brahma Viharas. And that is because uh, of this. It said that when a situation arises in life and we bring to it whatever divine emotion we can, unconditional love or metta, uh, sympathetic joy or compassion, and none of those seems to work for us, or the situation, then that the one quality of equanimity is the one which seems to be able to hold any condition of life, to be able, uh, the quality which is able to respond to whatever that condition of life inwardly or outwardly is in a kind of wise way. I've also seen that this quality of um, equanimity is very benevolent. And kings or queens are that way, very benevolent. Um, It's a quality that gives us the ability to embrace all of life, not just what we prefer because it's, um, it's pleasant or agreeable or it fits into the already designed niches that we have in our heart and mind. But it really opens us to the mystery of life, to the everythingness of life. It allows a kind of intimacy with the different conditions, outwardly and inwardly, in life, without needing to annihilate the differences. it opens us to the paradoxes that we see in our practice and in life in general, and lets life be as it is, because that's the way it is. So there's a kind of being in life that we learn to be with equanimity that's very benevolent, that's very uh, spacious. I came across this one line during the summer uh, in The Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare that Portia said, the quality of mercy, which is like a benevolence, the quality of mercy is not strained. It falls like a gentle rain from heaven onto all of earth below. So it's not a strained kind of relationship to life. It's like a gentle rain, which is what oftentimes metta 
is uh, metta is uh, referred to like a gentle rain that falls and falls on everything without discrimination. It's said that all of the other Brahma-viharas are deepened by equanimity. Because of equanimity, metta, or loving-kindness, can be cultivated to this immeasurable impartiality. You know, when we do the metta practice, we start with the easy person and we progress to the difficult person. And when we do that, it's like we take whatever uh, power of metta or the energy of metta that we develop with the first easiest person, and we let that accumulate and then overflow to the next person, and then let that accumulate and overflow to the next person. And I often liken it to when I'm um, to a picture that I have of in my mind of when I'm going from island to island, and oftentimes I pass by the island of Molokai from the island I live on of Maui when I'm going to Honolulu. And um, Molokai is said to have the highest cliffs in the world from, you know, the top of the cliff down to the ocean. And um, you would see as you go sometimes waterfalls on the side of these cliffs that are sometimes five or six in a row starting from the top of the mountain and falling down into a pool, and then that pool fills up and overflows, and that waterfall then feeds the next pool, which fills up and overflows, and then feeds the next pool, and it goes on and on until it reaches the ocean at the very bottom. And so this is how the metta works, is that we start with what's easiest with on the top of the list, and we cultivate the loving-kindness with the easiest person. And then when we feel full there, and we feel that it's cultivated in quite a powerful, full way, then we go on to the next. And as we go on, we finally end up with all beings. And so we let that metta flow out in an immeasurable impartiality, where we feel very sincerely, that we can offer our love to all beings without discrimination, without preferring one to another. And it's said that it's through the power of equanimity that we're able to develop that immeasurable impartiality with metta. With compassion, Equanimity is the doorway for compassionate action to take place because it is said that when there is uh, equanimity there with compassion, we can actually take that action without an attachment to result of that action. I remember once when I was listening to the Dalai Lama and he was talking about the plight that he and all Tibetans have uh, with their country. And there was an activist in the audience, and the activist got very, very um, energized with the talk and said that, stood up and said that, I really want to help you, I want to do everything I can, and was quite energetic and had this... um, kind of reactive feeling about him, which is the far enemy of equanimity, reactivity. And uh, the Dalai Lama advised him to not take any action with that compassion that he thought that he had until he had really developed a inner stillness with it, a, an ability to act on behalf of that compassion without attachment to any result, which is really hard to do. But it is equanimity that allows us to do this, to take compassionate action 
without attachment to the result of that action. We take the action because it's good to do, and it may help, but if it doesn't, we can't help that either. It's said that through equanimity, the happiness of sympathetic joy can be expressed truly and unconditionally without judging uh, the other person as to their, how they uh, have that kind of happiness that they have without comparing them to another. Uh, it really allows us to be joyful in an unconditional way. So equanimity is involved in all of the other three Brahma-viharas, and it gives us the power to act on those Brahma-viharas without attachment and without aversion. When we, the subjective experience of equanimity, when we actually experience it in a moment or during moments of time, it feels like a very balanced, spacious stillness. So that's really what equanimity is all about, a balanced, spacious stillness. But it has this kind of balance with a clarity that's connected very intimately with every moment, with the situation, the condition, or the person, without backing off, without closing down, without running away if it's unpleasant, without trying to protect it or hold on to it if it's pleasant. So it has this balanced, spacious stillness with clarity that's quite connected to the moment or to the situation. When there is this spaciousness of mind that comes with equanimity, it gives us the ability to hold both unpleasant and pleasant experience at the same time almost. We see in our practice that there are many moments when it can feel very pleasant and simultaneously unpleasant. And usually this would cause quite a bit of confusion in the mind, in our hearts. But when this comes in our practice and there is equanimity there, the mind, instead of closing down with reactivity, the mind inclines to opening and gives us the ability to hold both without leaning towards any extreme. It's said in the Abhidhamma that the characteristic of uh, equanimity is to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. So it rests the mind, and in that rest, the mind opens, the heart opens, and we're able to stay on the middle path of our practice and of life in general. Sometimes equanimity is uh, misperceived uh, into being this tight and very rigid, precarious balance that we have. But it isn't that at all. We see very experientially that it's a very open state of mind. It's not shut down by keeping to a very narrow path of what we think is acceptable experience to us. When we start thinking this way, when we feel that we're very rigidly tight and closed down, when we want things to be a very certain way, and we think that we have to be balanced within that place, that small, tight, precarious balance. This is actually a very controlling mind, which is quite the opposite of equanimity, which is very open and balanced within that. There was uh, something I remembered when I was preparing this talk. Um, about how I thought I was so balanced once in my practice. And uh, it was early on when I had heard talks about equanimity and all of these Brahma-viharas and practiced them. And um, I came into an interview with Sayadaw Upandita, 
And uh, I was reporting to him very succinctly, and I usually would have it written down. He would always say, uh, short and to the point when, <laughs> when we go in to give our interview. And so I would write it down so I would be very succinct and to the point. And so um, I took those instructions to heart and would go in and would feel that I was very, um, uh, that I really wanted him to know what my practice was. And there was some little agenda I may have had there, you know, of wanting his approval or uh, wanting something back from him. But lo and behold, when I would give my report to him, at the end of the report, the bell would ring, and then I would, I would have to go. The, the uh, translator would say, well, time's up. <laughs> and I'd have to go. And so this was after two or three times I was here practicing with him. And uh, Sharon was helping out. She wasn't a yogi then. She was helping out. And I wrote her a note, and I said, Sharon, I give my report, and it's very succinct, and I'm to the point, and I would like to get some feedback from Sayadaw, but he never gives me any feedback. And um, so Sharon wrote back this note, and it was a little bit shocking. Uh, Sharon was short and to the point. (laughs) And she said, um, if you would just give Sayadaw some time, to respond to you, he would respond, but you're using all of the time to talk to him. (laughs) And I noticed when I was talking to him that I would constantly look at the clock to see how much time I had to keep going on to tell him how good my practice was. And I never gave him any time to respond, and so I never got the benefit in those first few times of hearing him. It was just wanting to hear myself. I was quite on a very narrow path, very controlling of that situation, thinking that I felt very balanced within it. But sometimes you go into life and you feel that your mind is quite balanced. But I think we have to question sometimes, are we open? Are we spacious? Or are we just, do we have some agenda? Are we on a very narrow path? Are we controlling? Sometimes equanimity is erroneously interpreted as dry, as a dry and sterile state of mind, because one is not expressing some kind of dramatic kind of reaction to a situation in life. But as we all, in our own ways, have experienced here in practice, we can feel um, quite intimately connected with whatever arises within us or whatever situation we see from the outside without a dramatic reaction. And we're actually more connected to it. We feel more open to it we feel more sensitized, even when there's not this big, heavy drama going on. um, We actually feel more sensitive. There's a sense of equipoise we have that's very beautiful and wonderful to experience. We feel connected with life, not shutting down, uh, not not closed down to what we don't like, not holding on to what we like, just letting all of life in, in a very sensitive way. It's said that equanimity has the warmth and love of all the other three um, Brahma-viharas plus balance. So there's not any dryness or sterility to it at all. It includes all of the others with the addition of balance, not being hooked by the extremes, not resting in any of the extremes, but really staying on the middle path of life. 
when the Buddha talked about the middle path of life, this is what one way in which the middle path could be interpreted. Really not getting hooked by the extremes, not leaning toward the pleasant or the unpleasant, but staying on this middle ground where we're able to see everything much more clearly. It gives us a great vantage point in life to be with equanimity because from that middle place we can see everything much more fully and clearly. In practice, and sometimes the suttas uh, or the writings, the teachings of the Buddha, it's often likened to a mountain, equanimity is, that remains unshaken in the face of rain or snow or heavy wind or rain. There's a mountain that we live on. Uh, it's a quite a tall mountain. It's um, Haleakala, a dormant volcano. It rises to about 10,000 feet. I think it's just 10,003 feet. Not too much higher than that. And we live on about the um, 1,800-foot level. So there's quite a bit of it from our house. We can see the top of it from our house. It rises very gently. And there are times when uh, Steve and I sit at home every year for the past couple of years we've tried to begin um, a practice and a ritual of sitting one month at home. It's wonderful to do that, to really take the practice and see how we can do with it right in our own home without needing to go away to a retreat center. But see if we can bring the depth of practice right at home. And Steve likes to sit on the front porch where we see um, a lot of ocean and that looks down upon other islands. And I like to sit on the side of the porch that looks up to the other side of the house that looks up towards Haleakala. And where I can see the different um, weather patterns of the day. In the, mount, in the morning, it can be uh, with a lot of uh, uh, clouds, over the, the mountain, and it's wonderful to just sit there, and within sometimes a half an hour, 45 minutes, all of those clouds, they don't necessarily travel anywhere else, but they dissolve. You're just, just sitting there and watching them like a, you know, op- with open eyes. You just see the clouds dissolve, like similar to what a mind state might dissolve. It's a lot of teaching from nature, just watching that mountain and everything that happens around it. And maybe um, in the afternoon there's a light rain, or maybe there's a heavy rain, and then the beating sun coming down upon the mountain. And there, it can be quite windy in the afternoon. We have the, the winds that come, the trade winds. And yet the mountain of Haleakala just stays very stable and sturdy without being moved. And so equanimity is likened to this. Uh, It remains unshaken in the face of all conditions. There's still a clear comprehension of what's going on no matter what's going on. The teachers I've had have been models for this and kind of mountains of equanimity as I've gone through life and had the, oh, the honor and the good fortune to come across good teachers Uh, in the face of a lot of suffering, I can open my suffering to them. And there's a steadiness and an unshakableness that can remain open to the suffering that I put out. I can feel the compassion that's there, but mostly I can feel their equanimity. And it really helps me to keep steady in my own practice. Not a whole lot of drama 
around the response to the suffering, but just a lot of equanimity. It's been a great model for me. And there are two stories I have to tell, one now and one later, about that. Um, Once when I was practicing with Upandita, it was my first long one-month practice with him, and I went to Australia to do this. He's like, just just looking at him, seated and walking from one place to another, is a great teaching to me. I mean, his Dharma talks can be really hard to get through, but just watching him is wonderful and been a great teaching to me. When I went to this practice in Australia, it was a time of great bodily suffering. And um, there was one time in practice where I felt like I was being torn apart by horses. It was as if each of my limbs were tied to four different horses and they were running in different directions. And it was really great suffering, very, very deep suffering. I wanted to stop and go home, but, you know, Hawaii was a long ways away, and so I kept going. And I would kind of, I'd go to him, and I'd drop in front of him like a puddle of water, and I'd say, I can't go on, and tell him what was going on with me. And he would remain completely unshaken by by what was going on in my practice. And there was another monk there who would get up and hear what I was saying and get up and say, oh, there's so much suffering in this world, there's so much suffering in this world. <laughs> he wouldn't know what to do with me. <laughs> but Upandita would just remain very mountain-like, unshaken, and listening to what I would have to say. And sometimes he wouldn't say much to me, but just please continue to be mindful. It wouldn't, there wouldn't be much from the words, but what came from his ability to remain unshaken and open, listening to what was happening. And with that kind of knowing that this too shall pass, really helped me to keep going and practice. There was this strength that came from that equanimity that was so important that his words didn't matter at all to me, what he said, but just the strength and his ability to receive that suffering. So that strength that he gave, that model of equanimity, gave me the strength to open to the truth of life to see the changing nature, the suffering nature of life within my own body-mind, to stop running away from what was unpleasant and stop trying to protect what was pleasant. Equanimity has this incredible energy that comes with it that allows us to open to the deepest truth, allows us to uh, remain unshaken in the face of great suffering and to embrace all of life, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that is often spoken about in, in some of the great writings, Eastern writings, to face all the ups and downs of life. It's an especially important topic now because I know that each one of us going back into life have a lot of trepidations. And whether we want to or not, no matter how hard we're trying to protect our practice, the thought of going back into the whiplash of life is coming on. And we wonder, how will I be able to face this, uh, the different conditions that we have, the different vicissitudes of life. It's um, these eight vicissitudes of life are often talked about. They are gain and loss, praise and blame, joy and sorrow, and fame and disrepute. 
And every single one of us knows what that means experientially. Gain and loss, praise and blame, joy and sorrow, fame and disrepute. We've all experienced the ups and downs of all of those in life. And as we do this in our practice too, as we see the times of sorrow and the times of joy, the times when we felt that we've gained something and the times that we felt we've lost something, the grieving that we've done. There's a lot of equanimity that's very naturally developed here that will carry on into life through the conditions that we have in life. We come to accept the cycles of life through our practice. And we think, how am I going to be able to go out just knowing the rising and falling of my breath? How will I know the rising and falling of life? You know, just knowing the you know, sadness within my heart and knowing how sensitive we are to it, how am I going to be able to accept the great sadness of the world? the great sorrow of the world. But somehow, in my own practice, I've seen that, that we do, I do have this ability to do that, that accepting the great suffering that's in this very body translates very easily into accepting the great suffering of life. When we really dissolve those boundaries between I and other, which happens here in practice, the seasons come and go, and we see that things come and go in within us, and somehow we accept that more in life. We accept that everything changes, and that's okay, and that it's not going to end anywhere. The beautiful poem, part of a writing by Rilke, that um, I'll read you just part of it that speaks to this. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. So we come to see this in our practice, you know, that through equanimity, through our ability to open to the ups and downs, the cycles of life, we see that no, nothing is final. And we begin to rest in that more deeply, rest in the kind of peace of the wildness of life, rest in that peace. Because we don't really have any other choice if we really want to rest because that's the truth. <laughs> what other choice do we have? We can make, you know, other choices to hang on to what we think is pleasant and keep that going, but that's not going to work. Or um, push away what's unpleasant, and that's not going to work. <laughs> we see that the only choice, the true choice we have, is resting in that kind of understanding of how things change. That when we do, then it's really peaceful. It's kind of a peace amongst the wildness of life. Um, my equanimity and that understanding that I've grown to have in practice was really tested this summer, at the beginning of summer. It was when... Um, our daughter, Therese, the one I keep talking about, <laughs> she's 18. She's been giving me, she's been my latest Dharma teacher and been giving me the latest lessons in life. She says to me a lot, you know, Mom, wake up and smell the coffee. <laughs> this is the way it is. You know, and I think, wow, <laughs> I wonder who the teacher is around here. Um, <laughs> She has come to two 
young adults courses and I guess through that she thinks she knows everything already you know <laughs> there's that saying hire a teenager while they still know everything <laughs> so I've just come to accept that maybe right now she does and I listen to her a lot well it was her graduation she graduated from uh, high school this year from Maui High the great Maui High and she wants to get off the rock, as all children do <laughs> when you're raised on Maui. You can't wait to get off the rock, no matter how beautiful it is. Um, so for her graduation, all my children came together, all four of them and my granddaughter. And two of them live on Maui. One is uh, my number two child, a boy, Ramon, and um, the youngest child, Therese, and the other children, the eldest one, my daughter Rona, lives in San Diego, and the other one, the number three daughter, lives in Portland. So they all came together. It was very joyful for me. It was the first time in years that I had had them all together, and it was one of those blessings and curses at the same time, you know. <laughs> I really had to give up keeping everything clean. It went back to the same old mess, and that's, you know, in the kitchen, and that's when Therese reminds me, Mom, wake up and smell the coffee. There'll always be dishes in the sink, you know, so don't try to keep it perfect. So around the same time of this graduation was when my uh, daughter Tracy went through a decision-making of wondering whether to have that operation that I related to you about, the one that reformed her hip. And so here was my daughter Therese graduating and then this daughter Tracy talking over with me in particular and all of us in general whether she should have this operation or not. There weren't very many that had been done in America or in the world. And so it was a very risky operation. It risks having her to have children um, in the future. And also it was very risky in, on her life too. She could lose a lot of blood because of where they were opening. And that's indeed, that's how it turned out to be. She lost quite a bit of blood and had to have... Um, for transfusions of blood. And so she was going over that operation with us. And so I was going through this really awful, um, not being able to open fully to the joy of Therese or fully to the sorrow or difficulty of my daughter, Tracy, in this. And it was really hard. It really tested how much I could open my heart. Could I hold the joy of one daughter and the sorrow of another? It wasn't that easy to do. Could my mind get that spacious and still and open? Could my heart open to both of them at the same time? So that was a test of equanimity, a test of really opening my heart to them. And the two other children that were left had their own difficulties and own joys. The, my son had just bought some land and was building a new home. And to be able to experience that, go through that, seeing your, one of your children be able to do that is a great joy. You know that you can really begin to let them go. And um, while the other one, the eldest daughter, at times in the past year had been homeless and wasn't able to settle anywhere, had to ask people to help her, shelter her and my granddaughter. And so it was very hard to open to the sorrow of one and the joy of another. And it's often said that opening to... Um, you know, having children and opening to the joys and sorrows of having children really develops equanimity in very natural way. This is a poem by May Sarton that 
has a lot to do with children and loving them and letting them go at the same time. If I can let you go as trees let go, their leaves so casually, one by one, if I can come to know what they do know, that fall is the release, the consummation, then fear of time and the uncertain fruit would not distemper the great lucid skies, this strangest autumn mellow and acute. If I can take the dark with open eyes and call it seasonal, not harsh or strange, for love itself may need a time of sleep, and tree-like stand unmoved before the change, lose what I lose to keep what I can keep, the strong roots still alive under the snow. Love will endure if I can let you go. So can we rest in that understanding of letting go, but still connecting deeply with love? It's really an art form, a balance to be able to do that to remain open yet connected, to have that clear intention to do that. There's a saying by Achan Shah um, that I liken to my own being a, a mother and also a spiritual friend or a teacher. Don't be afraid to let your students suffer, Achan Shah says. Don't be afraid to let your students or your children suffer because that's how a lot of equanimity is developed, through suffering, through opening to that. The near enemy of uh, equanimity is apathy or indifference. It's a form of not being connected. It's a way of not being connected. Sometimes when I see my friends or my children caught in a hell realm, um, I really want to help them sometimes. But it's so hard for me to open to the realms that they're going through, especially when they're so close to me. And I feel like I close down. And I think sometimes that I'm equanimous, but I've really been closed down and indifferent to their suffering. And I ask myself, how can I really connect and care without being dragged into hell with you? And that's really hard to do. Um, I have a friend that um, has been going through a hell realm. <clears throat> and by trying to help her, sometimes I am pulled into the hell realm with her. And. I've really had to step back and know that deep within me it's from a space of equanimity, even though she calls it indifference or she says, I don't care. Um, I really have to work at feeling my care but not reacting to what's happening with her. And so here I come to the far enemy of uh, equanimity, which is reactivity, which is a kind of partiality, going from one extreme to another. And it's interesting with this friend that I'll go from that extreme, I'll feel myself in that extreme of feeling closed down because I can't take the hell realm that she's in, or reacting, you know, like I really want to help and um, getting all excited and uh, having this really strong agenda to wanting things done in a certain way so that she'll get over the suffering. It's really hard to keep your equipoise in life like that. So what I notice with um, trying to cultivate equanimity is that sometimes I go 
lean to one side and go through a kind of reactivity. And then noticing that that's happening, come back to a place of equipoise and equanimity. And then sometimes I'll lean to the other side of indifference or being closed down. And then noticing that's happening, coming back to the middle path of equanimity. And so in the actual practice of opening, cultivating equanimity, we'll kind of lean from one side to another. And just noticing where we're at helps us to bring ourselves to more of a middle path. It's interesting that with this particular friend that I have, um, I learned a lot through that relationship with her because I almost idolized her. I put her on such a high, high pedestal and really had this very strong love and um, connection with her. And so it was through, you know, then when something happened, she went through a hell realm and through going through that hell realm, blamed me for something that really I had no part in. From having a very strong attachment to to her in almost an unwholesome way because I didn't realize how much I idolized her, that I had a very strong reaction to her and pushed her away. And so I went back and forth from this, you know, attachment and then this aversion with her. And that's what sometimes when we're not in equanimity happens. We go from one pole to another, really liking someone to really disliking someone. It was helpful for me to get connected again with that balance, that open, spacious balance with her, where I could, I could love the beautiful qualities about her and not get attached to that, not put her on a pedestal for that. And I, also I could see clearly the parts of her that weren't so wholesome and not be aversive to that. And this is what equanimity helps us to do in the case of having a relationship like that with someone that's close to us. Again, we're able to hold both. We're able to hold our deep love, unconditional love, and see that clearly, see their wholesome qualities. And we're able to hold those places where we have aversion to their unwholesome qualities and not make a big drama out of it. You know, not demonize the person, which I did. I totally demonized her at one point because of this blame, because I wasn't able to be in that place of equanimity. And I feel very sad that I did do that But that's how I learned, because that's how it happened, and because I was honest with myself about it. Mm. So one last story about Manindra, who was my first teacher and still continues to be my teacher. And um, some of you may have heard this story, but a lot of you haven't, so I'll tell it again. There's a, a saying that, a phrase that Manindra uses with me a lot, and he uses the phrase, this is the law, this is how it is, is what he means by that. This is the law. And just recently, just in August, I received a letter from him I was going to bring it, but I forgot, but I kind of remember what he said. I had written a letter to him about my eldest daughter, Rona, and um, told him about the difficulty she had in life and the difficulty I had in holding that, in holding her life that way, with an open-heartedness. And he wrote back to me, and he said... um, 
he said, please don't worry about my sister, Mom. He calls me Mom. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but I, when I've taken care of him during some difficulties in his life, and um, he's been around all of my children, so they call me Mom. Actually, they call me the Dhamma Mama. And, <laughs> and so he calls me Mom, too. So he says, please don't worry about my sister, Mom because um, this is how it is. This is the law. This is how her life is being played out. And do your best to help her, but let go of the result, of attachment to the result. That's all you can do. And so he uses that phrase a lot. This is the law. One time he came to stay with me because he needed some medical attention and some of his students, especially Joseph and I, arranged um, for some surgery to be done for him to uh, rectify a previous surgery that had been done. And it was really challenging uh, to have him in life. I had four kids at that time, and he was the fifth one since he called me mom. And <laughs> so he... I was working and had the four children, and he came uh, to stay with us, and um, he had the operation on Maui. Being a very gracious person and a gracious guest, he shared the Dhamma with us and with me in particular because he said that that's what he had. He didn't have any money or any, anything to give but the Dhamma. And it's said that the Dhamma is the greatest gift of all the kinds of dana, of um, generosity, that, da that the Dhamma is the highest of those. And so I, I was really honored to do that. So every morning I went to his room um, and to receive instruction and to receive the Dhamma, his gifts. His enthusiasm for sharing the Dharma is so great. It's so wonderful to be around him. It's actually quite remarkable. You can ask him a question in the morning, and he won't finish answering that question for the whole day. You know, he'll use every situation in the day to give you an answer to your question, to illustrate the Buddhist teaching. It's so beautiful how he does that. In this way, it was in this way that I got exposed to many of the teachings of the, of the Buddha, from impermanence to, you know, the empty nature of self to interdependence. And it was through life experiences and not always, you know, in a Dharma hall. So he would use that phrase a lot, this is the law. And I came to understand that when he used that phrase, he didn't mean that this is some, you know, outer law of the government or something being imposed on me or spiritual law that's written down. What he meant by that is that this is a natural unfolding of the laws of cause and effect. This is the natural unfolding of the laws of cause and effect. So when he would say that, this is the law, he would help me to realize in the moment, this is how it is. Th this situation is bearing fruit in this particular way, and you can't change that. But what you do have the power to do is to respond in a wise way. But first, one has to see that this is how it is before one responds in a wise way. Um, so one time when I asked him about something very difficult in life, a very difficult hardship, I, I wrote it down. Actually, I had to write this for a book uh, that's coming out, an anthology that was uh, written for Ra Ram Das. So I had written his words down, recorded them, and um, had uh, put it down on paper. And this is what Manindra replied to me one time when I asked him something about my life and why it was so full of hardship. He said, this is the law. 
What is happening now is a result of actions in the past. But in this moment, depending on how you respond, you can create a different future, one of more ease and happiness. That future will eventually become the present moment. And the present moment will become the past. In this way, it is possible for your life to be surrounded by more happiness, past, present, and the conditions for happiness in the future. Everything depends on this moment. If you are mindful with equanimity, you can choose with wisdom how to respond. You can choose to react with generosity, love, and wisdom, or with greed, hatred, and delusion. It's up to you. So I learned from him so much about opening to the truth of this moment. When he came to us this that time for the operation, uh, when he was recovering, I wanted everything to be perfect for him. And so I wanted the... And also I wanted him to, to I think I wanted to give the, him the impression of how perfect my life was, which was a joke, but <laughs> he came to, um, when he came to recover after being in the hospital, uh, one time he, we were sitting at the dining room table and the daughter, my daughter Therese, who's now 18, was beginning to grow into her adolescent years then, going through, you know, her blossoming years, a lot of hormones. And I was sitting at the table with Manindra. He was at one corner, and I was right next to him at the other corner. And my daughter, uh, Therese, had this big flare-up of anger with her father, and who has given me permission to tell you this story. And uh, in that flare-up, her father got really upset at her and told her to, um, you know, to stop shouting and all of that. And they were shouting at each other. And I was really embarrassed. And Manindra was sitting right next to me, and I knew he didn't know what to do. His eyes were kind of looking up and darting as he was eating, and uh, he was looking at me and wondering what to do. And I was trying to be calm, but I was really had a lot of embarrassment and, you know, uh, didn't know what was going to happen, couldn't control. I was helpless. I felt confused. I was angry at them for doing what they were doing. Everything was happening. My daughter ran around us, ran to the, her room, slammed the door. Her father was right on her heels, went to the door. He started to pound on it and started to say, open this door, open this door. And she said, no, I won't. And she had locked it. And he said, open this door, I'll kick the door in. And he sa she said, go ahead. And he did. He kicked the door in. And at that time, Manindra was like, he, he, I didn't know what was going to happen. I really wanted to protect him. He put his right hand over, and he put it on my left arm, forearm, that was on the table. And he looked at me with the kindest eyes, you know, the most accepting of suffering eyes. <laughs> and he said, this is the law. <laughs> he said, surrender to the law. <laughs> Surrender to the law. That, those words, surrender to the law, have been so important to me in my practice. I say them all the time as a mantra. Surrender to the law. Surrender to the law.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.